Ken Lopez is an antiquarian uh, used book dealer and author archive broker dealer agent. We can we can explore all of those. Based in Hadley, Massachusetts. Yeah. Uh, welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you very much. I was, as I mentioned, I was watching uh, your video on the ABAA website. That was some time ago. Mm-hmm. And um, I was very intrigued by the fact that you had uh, decided against signing up to go to Vietnam and gone underground. You went underground for five years. That's right, yeah. And that informed some very interesting things that you've done in the book world. Well, it certainly did um, leave me wondering after the war had ended and after the statute of limitations on my particular crime had passed, how was my life different from those of my peers who made one decision differently than I did? And that made me want to see if I could find others' accounts of their time in Vietnam and descriptions of their experiences. And it was not that easy to do, but this was right around the time that books like A Rumor of War were coming out. Um, and when I read that, I thought this was very interesting. And I started looking for other books that had been written by people and who had served in Vietnam. And This was were, A Rumor of War is what? Who's it's that It's Philip by? Caputo. And he, he served as a Marine in, in Vietnam and then later went back as a journalist. And so, it was one of the first wave of books, Dispatches by Michael Hare, came out the following year. One of the first wave of books after the war to look back on it and kind of examine it from the perspective of the individual as opposed to the strategic analysis, historical analysis. So what it gave, in effect, was the other... If you'd have taken the other path, it gave you an idea of what that might have yes, looked like. exactly. And, and I was interested to know... I was in a writing program at the time in a kind of experimental college, Goddard College. I don't know if I mentioned that in the ABA. You did, yeah. And one of, the, one of my classmates in the writing class was a Vietnam vet. He'd come back fairly recently. And he and I didn't have a lot of common experiences, but we, had, we got along really well at some fundamental level. And I was interested to know, without wanting to pry into his life and what his particular experience there had been, what it was that could have caused us to have a bond or be able to recognize something in each other that was very sympathetic. And that was kind of led me toward looking for these books people had written about Vietnam. And it was hard to do at the time. There were not that many of them. A number of them had been published and you know, sunk into obscurity very quickly. Um, so there was this whole sense of kind of following your nose, reading the blurb on one book to find out that another book existed and then looking for it. So anyway, yeah, then I, in doing that, I put together a, a big collection of Vietnam War literature that I then decided, you know, not many people know about all these books. And At this they, point, were you a book scout? I was a book scout, yeah. yeah and maybe okay. in the first couple of years of being a, a book dealer, more than a scout. I, I did an actual catalog of, of my Vietnam collection and right. offered it for sale as a collection. And so, um, what what was your very? I mean, we, you got this book by uh, Caputo, mm-hmm. and you read it, and mm-hmm. you were what profoundly affected very moved, by it. Yeah, very right. Moved. At what point did you say to yourself, "These types of books are really uh, valuable descriptions of something that's that's really important to mm-hmm. the American nation." Well. If you mean valuable in terms of meaningful and important, That's what immediately, I mean. yeah. yeah, the idea of being valuable in terms of mon- money didn't come until much, much later. And even then, it was really not so much the individual books as the books in aggregate right. represented something, a body of information about Vietnam from kind of the grunt's eye view. That, that, so that was the, the idea that came to your mind, was I'm going to get a grunt's eye view of what Pretty much what place. the people who would have been me right. in Vietnam writing about their stuff. I wasn't going to be an officer. Yeah. You know, if I had been there, I'd have been a soldier, you know. Yeah. And 
so no, kind of trying to understand what it had been like to do that and be there. And it was, it was very painful. Those books are, are pretty horrifying in lots of ways. And, but they're pretty edifying in some ways, too. I mean, it's, it was really an eye-opener to realize how much, how much love there was in those stories, a lot of camaraderie, the kind of bonds that, you know, would be forged between people because of hardship and duress. And was there a bitterness as well? There was plenty of bitterness, yeah. Mm. Um, it was funny. I did, a, I did several catalogs of 60s literature and Vietnam literature combined, and in one of them I wrote in an introduction that it was funny that the kind of peace and love of the 60s literature often seemed to be infused with a kind of bitterness about the way things were. And the kind of war stories often seemed to have this kind of camaraderie and love that, you know, one was, was nastier and the one was more kind than you would expect. You would have thought just the opposite. Flip side, yeah. But what about, um, and, uh, and I'm really thinking of, because thinking about this, uh, Wilfred Owen, his Dulce a Decorum Est, his mm -hmm. famous poem, yeah. I mean, that's about as powerful a kind of an anti-war, don't buy the patriotism bullshit, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that kind of line, that's as, as powerful a expression of that that I've ever come across. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, I think... I think some of the writers about Vietnam kind of took their lead from the World War I poets. You know, that for America going to Vietnam, most of us were seeing John Wayne, you know, and it, it took some horror to open our eyes to something else. But once, once that horror occurred, you look back and there was this whole generation of poets in World War I who had already kind of defined that turf in, in ways that were, you know, excruciatingly painful and at the same time, you know, highly, highly artistic and elevated the art to, or elevated the pain to a, a level of art that was redemptive. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Vietnam books were, you know, were, and still are to some extent really interesting to me and, and uh, the kind of literature that I found there was, was a complete eye-opener just it was so much better and more varied and very human you know I mean yeah um, well you again and you I don't think all book dealers are great readers necessarily but it sounds like you are I like to read and that's you know what started me in books and when I started being a scout it was so I could get books that I wanted that I couldn't otherwise afford. And mostly at the beginning, at least, those weren't books I wanted as a collector. They were books I wanted because I wanted to read them. Right. And then my collections became the people I liked to read, you know, and so I had collections of all these various modern authors. Raymond Carver's the one Raymond that you... Carver. Just simply because he was, he was teaching at that mm -hmm. college, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he was teaching at Goddard. Did you, did you go and get him to sign everything? or No, because um, I didn't get my stuff of his until after... This, he was there for the summer that I was there for the oh, summer. And okay. then after the summer ended, I started collecting his books. Right. And Richard Ford was there, and I started collecting his books. Um, and John Irving I had started reading and really liked, and he was supposed to come up and give a reading there. But when the world, according to Garb, was so successful, he, he bailed on the reading at Goddard because I think they paid $25 to a writer to show up for a reading, and he didn't need the $25 that badly anymore. But I saw Tim O'Brien there the year before Going After Cacciato was published. And he gave a reading in a room smaller than the one we're in now. There were about 12 of us in it, in a basement room at Goddard. And he was reading from Going After Cacciato, which was a work in progress. And I remember thinking at that, the time... That won the National Book? It did. It yeah. won the National Book Award. And it was kind of a magical realist novel that was partly in Vietnam, but partly in this character's imagination, mm -hmm. an overland walk away from the war to Paris. But he was reading a, a section of it that as I was sitting there, I was thinking, this is as close as I ever want to get to Napalm. I mean, he was it was so vivid, the writing that he was reading there. Well, it's um, so kind of horrific. Just her absolutely horrific and, and just, and vivid, you know. I mean, how do you convey 
napalm in words. Well, he did. You know, I mean, huh. it, was, it was a miracle what he could do with words. Phil, again, this is an example of a, a, an author that really spoke to you, and you said to yourself, i got to get a hold of everything he's written. That's right, yeah. And, and, and uh, he, he's going to be an important writer down the road. Yeah, you know, I mean, the, the latter was something I thought he's, he's already an important writer, but, you know, he doesn't have much to show for it. And as it turns out, his first book had been published. It was a memoir of Vietnam, and it kind of faded into obscurity. It got good reviews and then just died because at the time nobody wanted to read about that stuff. You know, we were getting out of Vietnam and we were perfectly happy to put the blinkers on and, and not look at it if we didn't have to. But um, that book, you know, came to be worth a good deal of money. I think at one point I sold copies of it for $3,000 or so. Which the... Uh, if I Die in a Combat Zone okay. was his first book. And, so... And now that book is probably worth at best a third of that, if not yeah. less, you know. Just to what Copies are more available and... Because of the internet? Want, yeah. And yeah. people who want them are fewer and farther between now because he's a little bit more in the past and not in the present and so forth, you know. What about the actual collect collectors of Vietnam literature? Is it, does that go on in ebb and flow? I mean, is it... You know, I think my experience with modern literature of all sorts, including Vietnam literature, is that there is a kind of ebb and flow and, and you tend to see more people discover a writer or discover a field as it's being written about actively or as a writer's coming out with new books. Mm -hmm. And then if they die, like Raymond Carver, for example, you know, for a little while his reputation is, is steady, but then after a while there's a whole new generation of readers who never experienced a new Raymond Carver book. I mean, all his books were in, are in their past, and they don't even really recognize the name necessarily unless... Library of America does a volume of his stuff or something like that. I had a funny story. It's not book-related per se, but I was dealing with Mario Puzo's archive, and one of the key elements of it were um, the materials for the Godfather movie. And there was a part of the script where they asked where one character was, and, and the, you know, he, he's dead. And then Puzo had crossed it out and, and written in red ink, he's with the fishes. And it was one of the famous lines from The Godfather, he's sleeping with the fishes. And so here's this handwritten sheet where he's actually made that change. Um, huh. And so I was talking with a young collector, a very cultured young guy, and actually knew quite a bit about movies as well, and I was recounting this story. He said, yeah, I think I've heard of that, The Godfather. You know, and I'm going, here's the number one film on the AFI's um top 100 for the 20th century yeah. and a young collector for whom it was you know 30 years before his birth um, has heard of it well you know that's like me having heard of something from 1920 you know you could you could understand why it wouldn't be front and center in my consciousness even if it was pretty important yeah. that's what I found is that there's a whole new younger generation of readers and collectors for whom a lot of the names from the 60s, 70s, 80s are kind of history, historical, and they're not immediate the way they are for those of us who lived through those years. And So what do they collect now? Recent authors, obviously? I think obviously, they I guess? collect some recent authors, um, but again, I think that, that new books are so much more widely available and yeah. readily available than they used to be yeah. that I think there are a lot of things if, you know, the collecting book arts, for example, you know, finely bound things or collecting artist books where the copies themselves are, you know, works of art over and above the texts. Those are expensive, though. They are expensive, and that's not, you know, where a, a beginning collector, it's not an entry level. But but uh, but book arts can be moderately inexpensive as yeah. a way, and I think there are yeah. lots of collecting areas. You know, the Every year there's this uh, this book show at, at PS1, the, the MoMA extension in Queens that is, you know, underground presses, small presses, things like that. I think they call it the New York Book Art Show or something like that. And we've had a, an antiquarian book fair 
on the same weekend um, a couple of times where the, the Antiquarian Book Fair will have, you know, 70 dealers and it'll have 800 people come through the door, you know, in two days. And the MoMA will have 250 exhibitors yeah. and 20,000 people coming in. And they'll be buying things, and they'll be they'll be buying things that are three dollars. Yeah, like but little zines, little right? zines, yeah, yeah, little graphic novels and yeah. things like that. Yeah. So I think there's this you know incredible collecting interest. It's just bubbling up in places that didn't used to exist and are not yet really mainstream. So they're kind of invisible to um, a lot of us who are more mainstream. I, th I liken it sometimes to what the beats must have been like in around 1960. That, you know, if you knew who Allen Ginsberg was in 1960, you were part of a small subculture that was way out of the mainstream. So if you had one of his small books or if you had, God, you know, amazing a manuscript sheet or something, yeah. you know, you'd be in seventh heaven and most mainstream book collectors would look at you like, what? You well, know? and you probably paid peanuts for it. Yeah, too. yeah. I mean, there, used, there was a, a dealer from New Haven who used to go over to Europe and North Africa and buy manuscripts from Burroughs and Ginsburg and those people, including sections of Naked Lunch, and he'd give them like 25 bucks, you know, and then they would all go into a library, but that's how some of the great beat collections in, that are institutionalized here were built. They were built before those people were famous and their works were widely, universally considered important, yeah. so they got them for pennies, you know. Let's just move back to Vietnam if we can. Sure. You're saying that the, the sort of the value of these books now are the same as they were ten years ago, or less? Or? Individually, probably mostly less, mm -hmm. because it's easier to find most of them. The ones that were hard to find back then, if they exist at all today, are probably easier to find. And you know, for books from that era. They're just there's kind of a downward spiral of prices because if there are ten copies online, yeah. you don't want to put your book online and be the eleventh copy sold. You want to be the next copy sold. Yeah. So you're going to price, price it just a little, little underneath it. So um, there's that ratcheting downward of prices, mm -hmm. and most of the modern books, even if they were somewhat scarce, you know they had first printings in the thousands of copies, and. You know, if you could only see what's in your local bookstore in a couple of dealers' catalogs over the course of a year, you might never see them. But if you can see every dealer's inventory, you know, on your computer in your living room, you're going to see 10 copies. You know, 10 copies in a country the size of the U.S. is a very rare book, but it doesn't look rare online. It mm -hmm. looks like it's common. It looks yeah. like there, there are 10 of them, and there may not be 10 customers for that book at this point. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, those books are often priced very low because the sellers want to be the next copy to, to sell and they don't think they, you know, there's necessarily a huge demand for them. And there isn't, you know. So you were saying that the, the real value of, of these Vietnam books is sort of in aggregate. I think so. I think... And you put together, you put together a big collection, is I that did, right? A few times, yeah. A few times, yeah. and then sold it to institutions? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And also sold individual books to institutions once they had started collecting to right. fill in their collections, you know. So you basically, probably not single-handedly, but you made the case for these kinds of books to the institutional collector and... The, the Tried to, yeah. Usually the institutions, the case would be made by somebody in the institution. Right. And then, you know, then I could, they could buy from me. Right. Um, so as, as opposed to a bookseller, you're, you are a bookseller, but you're undertaking the role of a book collector and then a, then in a, a seller. In a way, yeah, yeah. And I did that with Native American stuff as well, yes, yeah. um, for the same kind of reason that there was. It seemed underrepresented, but it seemed really, really interesting to me. And once I read this one book, "Ceremony" by Leslie Silco, which I thought was one of the best books I'd ever read, and partly because of the way it was infused with a Native American perspective, um, I wanted to see what else had been written, and it wasn't that easy to find out. And, some of them were not that easy to find, even once you knew about them and so forth. It became just a really interesting field to me. And, and uh, you know, 
Yeah, you write about the fact that they're, they're kind of books that were written by by white people. Uh, or let me get this straight. They were they were basically critical of the native communities once they came back to them from being in the schools that they were mm -hmm. sort of dragged out of. Yeah, yeah. To discourage others from going back to their communities and, and encourage them to integrate into yeah, that was a national policy and yeah. those those kinds of books were distributed by the US government yeah so yeah. would that well, be part that be part of your collection well you know um, sometimes yes but mostly no because mostly those books were written by white people and right. I was trying to find books that were written by Native Americans and now, and, specifically about their experiences of being exploited? and Not necessarily. No. At, at first, yeah, that was a primary thing, or one of the primary elements. But, you know, I get to the point where discovering that there was a Native American writer who wrote mystery novels in the 30s right. was just a great thing to discover. And, you know, right now, um, there's Martin Cruz Smith. He's one of the great thriller writers of our era. Yeah. You know, he's partly Native American. He doesn't write about that. But... I mean that he counts then. I think he does. Yeah, yeah. I think that um, you know you, I don't think that Native American writers must be confined to only writing about Native American issues. Yeah, I think that's ghettoizing them in a way that you know is totally unfair. And I happen to think, you know, I think generally it's thought of in kind of liberal circles that Native American literature is a is a legitimate subset of American literature. And I happen to think that American literature is a subset of Native American literature. Right. That's going to make you very popular with the with Native Americans. <laughs> well, you know, I think it's it covers everything that American literature covers, and it covers stuff that American literature doesn't cover. So, which is the subset of which? Yeah, yeah. You know? So again, with this uh, collection. You went out and you you developed a comprehensive collection, which you then in turn sold to an institution, correct? You know, I, I did these catalogs and sold some big chunks to institutions, yeah. but um, didn't have one institution to buy the whole thing. Right. The closest I got to that was, I think I ended up doing six Native American catalogs, and the third or fourth of them was one that, while it was at the printer, we had sent out like six sets of advanced sheets to institutions, and three of the institutions bought so much of it that we canceled the printing. That's because great. <laughs> there weren't going to be enough books left to pay the printer bill, right, you know. Right. And, and uh, so that was great. That you know, but that was also um, I don't know if this story is in the ABA video, but one of those catalogs was also kind of my eye-opening event for the internet, where. A librarian called me up and said, thank you so much for the Native American catalog. I found two-thirds of the books on the Internet for a third of the price. Right. And, you know... You're an like, asshole. Well, yes and no. I I think... I wasn't sure if he was being kind to me. I think he was being an asshole deliberately. Yeah, it sounds like it. But I think he did me a huge favor by kind of informing me or educating me at that early a moment that the rules had suddenly changed about what information was available so, and what books were available. So how did how you adapt? Well, one of the things turned out to be that I didn't, I couldn't afford to do Native American catalogs anymore because the, the more common books, I couldn't afford to price them $3 and $4 no. and so forth. Right. And it was hard enough to get the, the really rare ones and the expensive ones and either you had to hold them for long enough to let them build up to be a catalog size, or else if you sold them off, then you would sell them off and never acquire enough to, to create a catalog. Right. So that's really what happened. You know, that we moved away from the more common ones into ones that were considerably more scarce or rare, but never had enough of them to have a, the critical mass for a specialty subject catalog. We just put them into a section in our regular catalogs. And that's what we still do. But you did still put out six, six, six catalogs. Yeah, yeah. Native American stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were they were fun because you know, um, I got to know some of the writers. I handled some of their archives. I sold Leslie Selko's papers for her and a few others, and so I got them 
to write introductions for the catalogs as well, which are these mini essays yeah. that um, you know that don't appear anywhere else and and that are interesting views of the subject of Native American literature written by a Native American writer. Right. And so that was that was fun to do. And yeah, incidentally, another poet uh, who comes to mind is Wallace Stevens's anti-war poems. Mm -hmm. Too much poetry written about Vietnam? Not much, but some. That's and good. some of it's very, very good. Huh. Um, like what? One of my, I did a top 25 list of Vietnam books yeah. as a way to kind of enter the collecting field. And one of them was a book of poems that came out as a paperback original called The Long War Dead by Brian Alec Floyd. I just found it tremendously moving that every poem had impact. You know, they cover a really wide range of kinds of experiences because each poem was about one person or one set of experiences. You know, I mean, that to me is what poetry can do. I was listening to somebody the other day talking about it and he was saying, if there was a better way to say this, then you wouldn't need poetry. That's but right. You can't they, paraphrase if, poetry. Right. If there isn't, then you need it. And that's... <laughs> I found that book, among others, but that one in particular, to be one where every poem packed a powerful punch. Uh, I've also been thinking about like, okay, you've done you've done Vietnam uh, and and Native Americans. Do you do you continually try to come up with new uh, projects to then develop? And do, so you're you're really doing a lot of hard work. I should, the, but I really don't. Not as much as I think I ought to. You know, those two both came very organically to me. They yeah. just came following my nose. Um, you know, right now, we our latest list had a, the first, for the first time, a section of climate fiction. Now, climate fiction is starting to be a thing, both among new published books and also as a way to look back on certain, mostly science fiction books of the past right. that have to do with climate. You know, I just happened to read a book a couple of years ago that would had a kind of science fictiony premise having to do with climate, and then it was like the southern U.S. was all had been declared kind of a non-country, and the border was established, you know, through Tennessee or something, um, because of the this ongoing series of hurricanes that one after another after another, and I thought, well, that's you know pretty interesting concept. Yeah. Yeah. And then last year in the Caribbean, there were those like two yeah. Category Five hurricanes within two weeks. Which followed, you know, big ones that had come before, and a couple of ones afterwards, um, where that seemed like we may not be that far from from that. I mean, this may be start to be an element of mainstream fiction in the very near future, as opposed to science fiction. Well, Margaret Atwood wrote uh, Mad Adam, which yeah, is yeah. A, same idea. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I mean, that that's something that the book that I read was good enough that to find out that there were other books kind of using some of these same ideas and exploring some of these same questions, I could see becoming a reader of that genre of, of fiction. And if I were, then that would be a place to start collecting and trying to see what, what else has there been done. And Well, it's also it's in the news every single day. Oh, exactly. it's, it's so top of mind with this... Yeah with our generation and also the next one. One of the books we had on a recent list that was um, about climate, it was a non-fiction book, but the person was who wrote it was a novelist, and he was saying, you know, our failure to deal with climate change effectively so far has really been a failure of imagination. We can't really imagine the extent or the scope of what this could mean, and because of that, Fiction is probably the best vehicle for exploring those things. And mm -hmm. it's the first time it occurred to me that, yeah, I mean, fiction might be the only way to really wrap your brain around ideas that are too comprehensive in their impact to mm -hmm. really get a good, pers you know, objective perspective on. Right. So, well, they're unthinkable, too. Is this well, exactly, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, in that sense... That seems like an area where, you know, if people are writing interesting books about that, I'd like to find out, you know, yeah. using those ideas, and I think I'd enjoy reading them.
Yeah, it's funny. Yeah. You seem to, to me to be more like a literary critic than a bookseller. <laughs> well, you know, I wouldn't trust my criticism very far. Well, but, I, I, but, but I you bet you bet on your own criticism. Though. Well, that's true. That's right. Yeah. I mean, and I would trust it that far that, you know, if something is compelling enough to me to, to move me, that there's something good and important that that author has done. And I'd like to figure out how to recognize it and acknowledge it and also let other people know about it, you know, if I can. Right. I mean, one of my favorite authors of all time was Robert Stone. Yeah. And I still can't quite find the two sentences to describe what is so great about his writing, but it is. Did you do his bibliography? Or I just, did, yeah. Yeah, okay. And, and that was partly an attempt to be able to come up with the concept of what it is that, that makes his writing so, so powerful to me. I'd like to be able to say what it is, because then I think other people could discover it and would share it. And I, I think whatever he had was precious and, and you know, way more valuable than we've recognized yet in terms of a perspective on our lives and, and the world. Uh, again, that's the motivation uh, often of a, of a literary critic is to is to bring attention to under-recognized uh, uh, right. yeah, yeah. authors. One of the things that I was thinking of was, you know, it wasn't obviously not as long-term as Vietnam, but it was still pretty significant, and that's 9-11. Have you looked mm -hmm. at that at all? You know, I thought about that, and um, I haven't looked at that as a subject matter theme, but I've had this, this vague idea in my, in my head that I read a lot of mysteries, I've had this vague idea in my head that mysteries changed on 9-11, that pre-9-11 mysteries are one thing and post-9-11 mysteries are something different. Hmm. And I'm not sure yet what those, how to characterize those things. But I also think that if, that, if there is any truth to that in mysteries, it's almost certainly going to also be true in mainstream literature, lots of other places. And, you know, it's a little facile to say, well, before 9-11 we were innocent and now we're not because yeah. we're Americans and we've almost never been innocent and we've always claimed it. But there is something that makes pre-9-11 books seem antiquated in a certain way, maybe a little bit oblivious or something in a way that post-9-11 books can't afford to be and wouldn't dare to be is kind of how I see it. So it's but, not so much 9-11 itself, but, yeah. but th that its impact has had this kind of reverberation in ways that I think I think are there, but I'm not quite sure how to say it or to prove it. But you can't collect that. You can't collect that. You can collect books about 9-11. Right. And, and have you looked at that at all? I haven't, you know. Um, I mean, I don't know if the, the, maybe it's still too, too it's early. It's possible. It's possible. You know, I'm sure there have been several done. I mean, Don DeLillo did. Yeah. yeah um, Martin Amos did something. I'm trying to remember if it was fiction or non-fiction. Second yeah. Plane or something like that was called. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm sure there are things that to be collected. It may also be true that, that it's too early to to come up. Some of the greatest Vietnam books, you know, were written 35 years afterwards yeah. because it took that long to digest it yeah. and, you know, be able to, to write um, effectively about it. But I'm not so sure you can't collect post-9-11 mysteries, for example. I mean, I think there's a kind of an American noir that has come into being in the post-9-11 era mm. that is very different from what was pre-9-11. If it's close to anything, it may be close to the, the noir of the post-World War II era, and it may even have similar reasons for being. But it's one of those things where history doesn't repeat itself, but it's kind of like a spiral, so yeah. it's similar to that, but yeah. you know, imbued with a different amount of irony and things like that that are now part of our literature in a way that, that weren't necessarily in the 40s and early 50s. What are you looking at now, like uh, for sort of down, you know, for the next five years, let's say? Like, what are you, what collections are you putting together? What catalogs are you? Are you doing any theme stuff, or is it more general? Or? You know, we've done little bits and pieces of theme things. We started doing some, some nature writing. We did a catalog of nature writing a few years back, but now we focused recently on 
unusual copies of books by John Burroughs, the early nature writer, for whom the John Burroughs Medal is named, which is given out for the best work of nature writing. And we came across some books on early wildlife photography, the turn of the century um, in England. A couple of brothers basically invented wildlife photography and basically said, you know, you don't have to go out and shoot these animals. You can just go out and take pictures of them. And it's every bit as challenging and every bit as exciting and fun, you know, and the animals end up alive. You know? <laughs> and they did. And they, you know, I mean, they were famous for having the first picture of a, a bird's egg in a nest in the wild, you know? Yeah. But one of their books has a, one of those co covers, embossed covers with an illustration. This guy rappelling off a cliff with a gigantic camera and a tripod on his back while the seagulls fly below him, you know. Right. And they were adventurers. And so this falls into just nature writing or nature, nature writing, photography? Nature photography. I mean, this whole, you know, one of the archives I'm working on is started out as a nature photography and then it wound up morphing over into photojournalism around the time of Mount St. Helens eruption. And then from there, the guy tracking the resilience of the environment around Mount St. Helens got interested in climate change and his archive is one of the great archives, photographic archives documenting climate change. So nature photography, photojournalism, climate change in a kind of seamless um, continuum and it seems to me that that's an important set of connections, you know, being attentive to the outside world, being kind of critical in terms of, you know, attentive to the newsworthiness of things that's happening in the natural world, and then recognizing that climate change is affecting all so much that, you know, your average person wouldn't know about. I mean, I wouldn't know about coral unless somebody told me about yeah. it, you know. So who's your audience for this? Is it institutional, or is it... It's mostly yeah. institutional for those right. kinds of things. The, these archives around here, they're all going to institutions, and... and you know, in theory, they have justifications, but, you know, we're hoping, I'm hoping, that there are individual collectors for whom these things resonate as well. And right. we do have some collectors for this natural history stuff, and we sold a collection of John Burroughs books to Harvard, but we also sold John Burroughs books, some really cool copies, to a private collector. And he's one of those people who, ultimately, his collection will be the basis of some institutional collection. It, it'll probably be donated or sold, you know, to a library in 20 or 30 years. Um, and collectors, you know, they do that. They collect these things before the institutions yeah. are aware of them or, you know, have the critical mass to, to commit to them. So we're hoping, you know, that we'll find people collecting these things that, that we find interesting and compelling and important and... And to some extent, we do see that. Let's get let's get to the collector then, and uh, if they use the same sort of thinking process that you did with Vietnam and with uh, with Native Americans, and they've come up with an idea and they've they started collecting away with it. That's the thing. There's the fun of putting together. First of all, you have to sort of come up with parameters mm -hmm. so that you can. You, theoretically complete that. Right, or know what to include and what to not include. What not include, yeah. yeah. And then there's the fun of doing that, and then just, I guess, throwing it back in the ocean afterwards. Then there's doing something with it, like doing your own catalog as mm -hmm. a collector mm -hmm. and trying to do what you do. You're doing what a collector does, but are you, you're obviously taking it to another level. Yeah, but not even that much. You know, I think I gave a talk a few years ago to a, a book collector's group. I think this was in Utah. And these were people who are serious, serious collectors. I mean, they know their field a hundred times better than I know their field. And they could care less about my modern literature for the most part or Vietnam or whatever. They were serious book collectors. And so I wondered what I had to, to tell them that they wouldn't already know. What I realized was what most book collectors don't know, because book collecting is a very individual and personal pursuit, is there's a there's a social dimension to what they're doing that is profound. 
and that has to do with the collection that they create, whatever its subject, can easily become the best or one of the best ever done in that subject. And by doing that, they're basically performing a social service. They're creating the possibility of, of a society learning something about these subjects that it doesn't know. And that's the thing I would say about collecting is there's, it's not just the fun element of it. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that it's an opportunity to learn stuff you don't yet know. And once you learn that stuff, you now are an asset to society. You are, but you need to do something with that learning. Right. You need right. to write it down. You have to produce some kind of, if it's a, if it's a catalog or if it's just sort of some dissertation on mm-hmm. what you've learned. Yeah, and a lot of collectors do that at the very highest levels. If you go to the Grolier Club or something like that, mm-hmm. you'll see the Grolier Club publishes pamphlets and books by its members on their collections and the subjects of them. Right. But even if you don't get that far, if you end up selling or donating your collection to an institution, you've given that institution yeah. the opportunity to increase the body of knowledge and, and information available. You've, you've given world. raw material that's to right. scholars. That's and, right. And that, right. I mean, that's a great service. Yeah. And, yeah. and so there's this social dimension to it that is implicit, and people don't really see themselves as doing a social good necessarily by book collecting, but I do. I think uh, I do too, but I guess the thing is how uh, open are these institutions to the collectors? Like, uh, I, uh, that, that's... The, I think one of the things, one of the great things, is is for a, a library to to encourage and cultivate their mm-hmm. local collectors. Sure. Problem is, they can't accept all these collections. Well, yeah, you're right. I mean, these days libraries are very careful about what they try to accept or are willing to accept. But I think any collector who has pursued a collection with a kind of coherent and careful approach like what you were saying, recognizing where the, the lines are, what to include, what not to include. If your collection really has that kind of a focus, the likelihood of a library recognizing it as a useful, valuable resource is much greater than if you just say, well, I'm going to try to collect signed first editions of modern writers, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, there needs to be a focus. I think having a certain focus, and especially if it's a focus that's broad enough to be interesting and important, but narrow enough that you can actually learn it, you know, yourself, Uh learn about it, and enough to, you know, expand the parameters as you understand it better, but not just throw it open to, you know, whatever comes your way. I mean, I think, you know, collections educate us as we create them, and then they educate other people when we pass them on. So do you have clients who come to you and say, I've got this collection, can you sell it to an institution? I've, I've had that. It's hard to do. I've, I've more often have helped them, if they're in the income bracket where they can use a tax break, I've helped them donate them and get a tax break. Okay. Uh, selling collections as a whole is hard because you, if you find an institution that's interested in that, they're almost certain to have all the common stuff that's in the collection. So they you have a they huge, just want the top, the, the most yeah. They have a huge problem of, of duplication, and if they don't, if they're not already collecting in that area, well, then it's probably because they don't want to. You know, you have to find the institution on the cusp of beginning to collect there to sell them a whole collection, and that's very hard. But donating collections when they have a clear focus is still. Um, can be done. Yeah. The institutions tend to be grateful for that. On a fairly wide-scale basis. Yeah, if, if the collections really are serious. You know? yeah. And yeah. just, I think it, it's serious if you have, are able to use that collection to learn yourself. Yeah. That means other people could too. Do you have a, a good example of a collection like that? Yeah, I, I helped a, a lawyer, a conservation lawyer over near Boston, collected books on the history of conservation, the conservation movement in the U.S. From one, from certain year to certain yeah, year? Yeah, from basically the beginning of it, which really is around the turn of the century, Teddy Roosevelt and so forth. And there was a first meeting about U.S. Um, conservation, and it was like held by the Geological Society or something like that, and he had the 
the invitation to Teddy Roosevelt from the, you know, as part of it, a keystone of it. But he had a lot of Rachel Carson and so forth. Okay. And I, you know, I did the appraisal for that and helped him donate it to a collection in Texas, at Texas Tech University, that's geared toward literature, the environment, um, and, and how the environment and community interact. And I've right. sold a lot of our authors' archives papers to that collection. Barry Lopez's papers went there, Rick Bass, um, a bunch of good nature writers and, and people. A poet, Patty Ann Rogers, whose poetry is very much nature inflected. Hmm. And so, you know, I arranged for the donation of, of his conservation collection to that, that collection there. And they were overjoyed, you know, because they couldn't have afforded or justified the money that it would have cost. But he could afford to do it because it got him a tax break, which didn't, I'm sure, didn't remotely pay for what he had paid it. For the collection, but his collection became part of you know this learning. Yeah. Um, institution. Plus his, maybe his name goes on it. And yeah, exactly. All of that. Yeah. yeah. So that was great. I yeah. was very lucky to do that, and, and they were lucky to get his books. And, yeah. You know, he was a serious collector. He worked on it for a long time, and you know ended up being one of those people who you know knew way more about the subject that he was collecting than I did. I could sometimes find things he didn't have that fitted with his collection, but he was very much more knowledgeable and you know the collection enabled that kind of knowledge for him and it it will do that for others in the future you know where it is now that's a very interesting way of just thinking about your collection is it something that people can or the scholars can learn from that's a really important question to i ask. think so i really do i mean i think that puts you in a continuum and means that your collection your collection will outlive you but the importance of it is the importance you created. You know, it's a, there's a kind of immortality in a certain way yeah. for a collector to build a collection that becomes useful to succeeding generations. And I, I think Any other good. questions like that that you might pose as, as a collector? I think one of the things that, that is, for, for me, the most interesting is, can I learn from this? And... If the answer is yes, then it means you, you, the collection is kind of helping you retain a sense of humility in the face of the knowledge of the world, and that's I think that's a good thing. You know, I think the idea that we can con continue to learn, we don't yet know it all, um, that that's one of the things books can give us is this, you know, very concrete awareness that you know our knowledge falls short and it mm -hmm. can be improved upon day by day. And by doing so, we're not just, you know, I'm not just educating myself and then it all disappears when I die. If I have a book collection that's being um, created out of that, then that education that, that I got out of it is now available for others too. Yeah. So I think that in, in that sense, book collectors do this, this great social good that really goes under the radar for the most part, but shouldn't. It should be recognized that what they're doing has a social dimension that's really, really important. And yet, the vast majority of book collectors' collections get tossed back in the ocean. Like yeah. 95%, yeah. I would think. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, in a certain way, there's a danger of list collecting, which is a, a fun thing to do, collect all the Pulitzer Prizes. Um, but, you know, there are already collections that have all of them, so you're not going to really add to the knowledge of the right. world by doing so. So in that sense, you know, back in the ocean, or at least back to the auction house or to the bookseller and dispersed to be recycled into another generation of, of collectors. Um, but the point is to come up with some original thinking beforehand on your own and something that turns your crank. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if, yeah, that's one of the points. If, if you can do that or want to do that, I think it's really rewarding because I think the idea that that I can be learning every day is, I think that's a great idea, you know, yeah. um, that my learning didn't stop in high school or college. <laughs> and books, you know, do that. They, they reward you with that, that possibility. Just uh, winding down... Um... You, you, we 
before the interview started, you mentioned that uh, 50 to 60, 70% of your income or revenue these days is coming from author uh, archives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's uh, been a, a part of your business plan, I guess, over the years. Well, you know, I, I sold my first one in 1992, so um, I'd already been selling books for a while before that, but that's 27 years ago now. So it's been since then that's been a part of my my business. It's been more a part of my business for two reasons: the internet made a lot of the modern books that I sold previously much more widely available and not really capable of being sold the way I had been via catalog and so forth, worth enough to, to justify that. But also, you know, a whole generation of writers has come of age to the point where they're now on the downside of their career. They, their archive is maybe not complete, but mostly complete. They're looking for a place to, to um, preserve it. Or they've died, like several of the writers' papers are here now. Um, these are the final updates to archives that I'd sold earlier, but they kept things that they needed while they were alive, and now they've died. So I'm working on getting their final papers to the institutions that bought the archives to begin with. So, you know, those two things have combined to mean that there, at least for the moment, there are a lot of writers whose papers I'm dealing with, and... There are fewer books than um, there were prior to the Internet for me to deal with as r rare book catalogs when your focus is modern literature. So that sort of propelled you in the direction of... Uh, it did, author, yeah. and it also propelled me in the direction of some of the other um, fields like this nature photography and things like that. You know, those books aren't as common, and especially if one of the things we've tried to do for a long time, even before the Internet... Um, was not just have the text, you know, the first edition of the text, but have some a copy that had some story about the copy itself, if possible. What do you so, mean? So that, you know, an association copy that was given by a writer to a friend or yeah. a copy. We had the copy of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest that Ken Kesey had to revise because of a lawsuit filed against him by one of the characters in the book. There's a story that, you know, was very little known, but Kesey told me about it, and I thought he was pulling my leg because I'd never heard of it, and I collected Kesey. I thought I, I would know about this if it had happened, but it it had happened, and all the the individuals involved were had these non-disclosure agreements, so it was never publicized. And I found out about it from him and pursued it and tracked it down and eventually wound up with the copy that he had used to make all the changes that had to be made to satisfy this lawsuit. And so, I mean, that was, a you know, an example of a copy of a book that was more than just the first edition. One of the books, the coolest book I think I've ever handled, was somebody had bought the editor's copy of the proofs of the Lord of the Rings at auction when the editor had died. And they had kind of gone under the radar because... The editor was totally unknown. The way Tolkien um, did his final revisions, they sent him the proofs, and he would read ten pages and mark them up and tear them out and send them to his editor. So this was a big stack of loose pages of proofs torn up. Um, and the fact that, that Tolkien had reworked them extensively was less obvious than it was a jumble of mess. And so this book dealer bought it, sorted through it to, to piece it back together as the three volumes, took it to the best bookbinder in America and put a jeweled binding on the three volumes that when you laid them out flat was a picture of Mordor and the dragon smog and, um, you know, encrusted with jewels. And it had the final changes Tolkien made to the book in his hand, including the epigraph for the whole book is the inscription on the inside of the ring. And he, after it had been typeset, he changed it because he liked the, the, he just didn't like the wording as well. Right. And so, I mean, here's, the, you know, the most famous line in the most famous, you know, book kind of thing. And for a brief moment, I owned it and handled it and got to see it and just got to 
live that moment where he was re rewriting this critical element of, of this great series of books. So, is, would that be part of your advice to the collector? Then is don't necessarily just go after a, a first edition. Save your money instead of buying four or five first editions. Buy an association copy. Yes, yes. I've been pitching that for a long time. There's, there, you know, there's been this argument in in the modern book trade about is it better to just have a signature or is it better to have an inscription? And I've always come down on the side of the more writing by the author in the book, the better. Yeah. And if it's writing that has substance to it, and or it's addressed to someone, you know, of some importance to you or to the writer or, you know, whatever that you can figure out. And these days you can figure out a lot more, a lot more easily than you yeah. used to be able to. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I would say lots of times great, great association copies come up for not very much money. Where? On the internet and in people's catalogs. It's one of these things where there'll be 12 signed copies of a book yeah. online. So, you know, the top copy is $45. It happens one of those 12 is a fabulous association copy and the other 11 are just more or less just autographs and but they're not priced differently frequently interesting and so that you know you so yeah in other words you've got a you've got a unique copy yeah exactly yeah you know if you can't have the manuscript yeah you've got something that is essentially almost as unique yeah and and that's that's very doable I, tell people this is the golden age of book buying because yeah. all us dealers are forced to keep our prices as low as we can stand it because there's so much competition. Right. And what that means is a lot of really great stuff slips through at very modest prices. And if you can recognize what appeals to you and know why it appeals to you, you can build great collections, very you know, modestly priced books taken out of this market it would make total sense for them to be much more expensive. Hmm. Yeah. How long is this market going to last for then? Uh, you know, I think it's it's here for good. Oh, you know, okay. I, I really do. <laughs> I thought at first it was going to be just until the dealers who had, you know, had non-internet inventory prior to the internet until that inventory was exhausted. But now it's become the modus operandi of, you know, you put get a book, you check out what is how many copies are online, you price yours accordingly in hopes of selling and that there are always there are not always copies online. It seems like there are always copies online, but lots and lots of books are not represented online at all. But um, of the ones that are, you know, especially modern books that the prices tend to be very modest and driving downward mm -hmm. you know, all the time. So mm -hmm. that that gives the book buyer you know, great opportunities. There's something about wanting to be sure you have an idea of what you want and then having the confidence in your own idea yeah. to recognize that this really is a great, great thing for $45, whereas this autographed one for $45 or $40 is just an autographed copy. There's right. nothing especially wonderful about it. And I still get a kick out of every book that we have that has a story it tells. Yes, you know? yeah. This is a specific question, and we, we can go on. I don't have to, to, I can take it out, I can edit it, okay. but yeah. uh, if, if it's a problem. But um, I was uh, very interested to see that uh, Michael Ontaje sold his archive, and, mm -hmm. and you handled it, right, yeah. to the Harry Ransom Center mm -hmm. last year. And uh, no, I don't begrudge him at all trying to get as much as he can for his life's work. Right. But in Canada, there wasn't a peep out of anywhere expressing concern that this iconic Canadian writer's yeah. uh, material, life's work, yeah. had gone down to the States. There was nothing. There was one piece in, on a CBC website mm -hmm. that was could have been written by the, the media relations people. Yeah. At, uh, so my question is, did anyone express any interest in purchasing his... No, that's the thing. It's like they, they're not budgeted to do that. So they, you know, they knew they, they wanted his papers for sure, but he would have had to give them to them. 
basically. Mm -hmm. You know, I had a thing years ago. I had a bunch of Garcia Marquez manuscripts, and, you know, it was a national scandal that these had migrated up to some wealthy gringo bookseller, yeah. um, and as opposed to being in Colombia. But they came from his sister. He had given them to her. Columbia, you know, the National Library wanted them, but she could use the money. And yeah, they, didn't, yeah. they weren't going to purchase them. And I, So they, they called me up basically to, to ream me out and make me the butt of their... I, it was a feature story in Semana, which was the Time magazine of Columbia at that point. I spent two or three hours on the phone with my fractured Spanish explaining to them that this was really the only way to... to preserve this stuff was to get it where somebody was going to pay money for it and therefore almost have to take really good care of it because, you know, they expended so much right. lucre on it. And, you know, so they didn't, it didn't change the whole framework of the article, but they put a sidebar in that basically you had my whole rationale for, for this. And, you know, I think that's been the case, you know, really this thing of valuing these kinds of archives this way and paying for them is, is, has been a pretty strictly American phenomenon. Now, it's recently, you've started to see it in a few, in Britain, it's happened some. Well, they've, they've finally, I guess, got some kind of budget to keep it in the country. Well, exactly. And, and um, you're seeing that elsewhere in Europe, they're beginning to get a sense that, you know, if this stuff is worth keeping, then it's worth paying for. It's worth budgeting yeah, for, you yeah, know, and, yeah. and not just accept, expecting well, it's, that. Again, it's the kind of the identity of the country. Well, exactly. It's, and it's, it's, If you don't care about that or you demand that you get it for free, like, yeah, well, that, that's, aren't, aren't you insulting the, the, the stuff that's the very identity of your country, you know? Well, that's the thing that got me and it gets me, it still gets me. It just uh, the fact that there was no one, no one, and this, and, and uh, Dudge is, is one of a handful of the greatest Canadian writers yeah, yeah. ever. Yeah, yeah. He was aware of that too, but he also, he knew that, I think he had given some of his papers to the National Archives there. He, yeah, he, that's point. what they told me. They, yeah. they, uh, he'd given... He'd given them stuff from 62 to 93, they said. Mm -hmm. like the, it sounded like there was a ton of stuff. There was a, a fair amount of stuff, I remember now, because the early stuff especially, there was early stuff going all the way back to the late 50s, and that's what went to the Ransom Center. But during that early, in the 60s and 70s, it was pretty thin. You know, there were, you know, a lot of the bulk was not there. That's interesting. So they they probably they they probably got a lot of good stuff in the National Library in Canada. Oh, yeah. And maybe that was part of their thinking is we've already got all this stuff. Right. We're not gonna pay for from, you know, whatever it is, the extra stuff. Right. I think that's true and and you know, it it in a sense it's funny because the ransom center exists as I understand it, because one guy, Harry Ransom, in the nineteen fifties came up with the question of what can we at the University of Texas do that we can do better than anybody else in the world because we're Texans and we want to be <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. and it, he they figured out that nobody in the world was systematically collecting great literary manuscripts and great literary manuscript archives and also people that were writers that were still alive mm -hmm. yeah yeah they were going after that right. oh yeah and I think that was groundbreaking right that's true yeah and think of who was still alive at that point. You know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Hemingway and Faulkner and you know, that whole generation were still around. Um, so, you know, they created that and, you know, they're the best repository in the world at this point of yeah. literary manuscripts, yeah. um, at least in English. They must have still have a ton of money. Like, they, uh, they invested it well, I guess, or something. You know, I don't, I don't really know. know how it works. It, it, um, I think... I talked with Steve Ennis, the director, shortly after he became director of, of the Ransom Center. And he was saying, you know, people think we have all the money in the world, but the fact is there's so much good stuff being offered to us every week. We don't have all that much, that kind of money. We can't buy everything that's great out there that's being offered to us. Plus, every time we do make one of these big purchases, it's a project. We have to put together... You know, it doesn't just all come out of our library budget. We find the donors, we find the, <laughs> the department in the 
university and blah blah blah, so that it's they're kind of their their projects they they're put together. You know, I'm sure they have a very good budget, yeah. but they also create these these uh, combinations of sources. And sometimes, you know, universities get donations of money that can only be used to buy James Joyce, you know, or that kind of thing. And so they have those kinds of things that they can fit them into one or another purchase mm -hmm. they do. So it's, you know, it, it's an adventure. It's not always easy. And, you know, they sometimes want to buy something, but only if they can defer the payment until X because they've used up this fiscal year's allotment. They don't have time to put together a project for this during the current fiscal year. So they have a lot of money, and they, they spend a lot of money, but they, you know, there's a lot of great stuff out there. and um, They can't get it at all. They, no, they got Andache's papers right after they got Ishiguro's papers. They were both you know, good-sized archives and, and a pretty penny for each. Hmm. And you know, there's a limit to how many times you can do that in, in a year. You're still enjoying what you're doing? I am, you know, it's like I'm still learning. And um, That sounds like a pretty important theme in your life. Well, you know, if that weren't the case, then I'm not sure I would be enjoying it because, I mean, it is fun to see these, if you saw some of the things in some of these boxes, the writer's stuff, it's just fabulous. And, you know, Robert Stone, as I said, was one of my favorite writers. And I saw a bunch of some letters to him I saw some work he did with another writer I knew about that I never knew he and had collaborated with and things like that that, you know, are just great. It's, it's really cool to, to get an insight into what what these writers are doing that doesn't eventually bubble up into a published work, but is still nonetheless really interesting, you know, and bears on some of the same issues and themes that their writing focuses on. So... What are you reading right now that's blowing your socks off? Anything? I'm reading J.K. Rowling's latest book written as Robert Galbraith. And? Well, it's the fourth one, and I'm, I've read the other three, so and it's a 650-page mystery, and it's good. She's a great, great, great storyteller and a really, really good writer. And, and I have this feeling that her Harry Potter series not only saved a whole generation from not re being readers... But I think she they, she saved reading altogether, because if that generation had not become readers, the successive ones wouldn't have either, and they did become readers because of Harry Potter. That's yeah, huge, isn't it? That's a huge, I think it's huge. Yeah. I think it's gigantic, and I'm super glad she's a multi gazillionaire or whatever she is, because that's a great thing to have done. And mm. I doubt she, I doubt she was ever ambitious enough to be trying to do that. But I think that's what she did. And I have a daughter who was in that that age when it could have migrated strictly over into handheld devices and, you know, never a book crossed a lap. And I've read pretty well all of them aloud to my daughter. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. yeah I read. <laughs> that's the same thing. It is. It is. Absolutely. Yeah. I've read them. I, my daughter's read them. I've listened to them through twice at least on, on uh, books on tape, whatever, yeah. um, audible.com. And, you know, they bear up. And so Rowling, at this point, I would trust anything she writes because she's a really good storyteller. And mm. she's her first Robert Galbraith mystery was just a very good mystery, you know, and um, this is too. Great, well, what she did with Harry Potter is something for the ages, I think, I really do. Well, thanks so much for... Thank uh, you for asking me. I really appreciate it. I've been speaking with uh, Ken Lopez, who is a antiquarian, used book dealer, mm -hmm. and archives, author archives dealer based in Hadley, Massachusetts. Thanks again. Thank you.